starting in John 1.14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of, of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about Him and cried out, This is He of whom I said, He has come before he who comes before me ranks, he who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Let's pray and ask the Lord to bless our time this morning. Father, I come before you this morning and I just thank you for your goodness and wisdom as revealed in your word. Thank you, Lord, for this opportunity to declare your word to your people. Lord, I ask this morning you might grant wisdom and clarity of thought, teach your word and handle it accurately. Lord, I ask that you might enlighten hearts by your spirit. Lord, I ask that this food I bring to your sheep may be what the great shepherd would have his sheep to eat. In Jesus' name I ask this. Amen. So in verse 14, John starts with, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So there are a few things I would like us to understand here in, in this verse. It says, The Word... So this word is the Greek word logos. It appears three times in verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And it also appears once here in verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Why the Word, you might ask? Why not Jesus? John does not feel the need to explain why or give a definition of the Logos. This usually means they didn't need a definition. In other words, his audience was already familiar with the term Logos or word. So to the Greeks, it was a title given to the principle of reason and order and, and intelligence, which is a creative force, a source of knowledge and wisdom that existed. This non-personal cosmic force out there is what is responsible for the world around us. This is the power and the intelligence behind this vast universe and its beauty and perplexity. That is what the Logos meant to the Greeks. But to the Jews, the Logos was loaded with meaning. I believe that's what John is drawing from here. They were very familiar with the Word of God. The Word of the Lord came. The Word of the Lord came to such and such, saying. <clears throat> These phrases appear over and over in Scripture. And I believe this is what John is drawing from primarily. The Jewish, Jewish concept of the Word. John tells us here the Logos is personal. He is a person. A concept or idea or force cannot become human. John says, the Word became flesh in verse 14. To understand a little better what John is wanting to communicate to us with this concept of the Word, look with me at the first 
two verses in Hebrews 1, if you want to flip there. So the writer of the Hebrews starts his epistle with the brief but very important historical summary of how the Scriptures came about and describes to us God's method of communicating His divine truth to His people. So Hebrews 1, starting in verse 1, says, Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. And here is the phrase I want to focus on, the phrase, But in these last days, He, that is God, has spoken, that is revelation, to us by His Son, it says, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom He also created the world. So in the past, God spoke through the prophets and in various ways, but in these last days. So the Jews understood last days to mean the time when the Messiah would come. And ever since Jesus came, we have been living in the last days. So in these last days, God spoke finally and most clearly by Jesus Christ. Now this does not only refer to the words that Jesus spoke, but God spoke by Jesus. I think this is what John wants to wants us to understand by the word. In the past, God spoke in many ways, and through the prophets, now He speaks by the word in human form. The word, or Jesus, is God's word in bodily form. He is the word of God in the person of Jesus Christ. So God spoke the loudest in the Incarnation. He communicated the Father to us. We'll talk more about that later. The idea of the Logos is that He speaks. That's the first thing I want us to see. Second thing, John says, He, the Logos, the Eternal One, God Himself, became. Now this word became speaks of coming into existence in a unique sense. The eternal Son of God became, not at all in the sense of coming into existence as the Son, but became flesh. This is the Son, the second person of the Trinity, becoming flesh. That is the becoming referred to here. The Son always existed as the Son. There never was a time when the Son was not, but He did not always have flesh. So this here is God becoming man. The infinite became finite. The invisible became visible. And the Word became flesh. That's the third thing I want us to see here. This is mortality, what you and I are, flesh and bone. We are mortal beings. Notice He became human. He became a man. Not an angel or any other created being, but man. He did not become an angel so as to save the fallen angels. That's what the demons or devils are, fallen angels. Satan is a fallen angel as well. So men and women are the only created beings made in the image of God. Men and women are the only created creatures God has chosen to save. In this verse, the immortal has become mortal. Now I want us to keep in mind, this is not a reduction of God. This is not. This does not add to God, nor does it change God. 
God is complete and unchanging. The eternal Word of God, sorry, the eternal Son of God was God and did not change. God is also not confined or constrained by anyone or anything. Therefore, He is able to take on human flesh so as to add a human nature to His divine nature. This is very important and I do not this is very important, and I do not want you to mistake this. The divine Son did not become half man, so that his divine nature changed into a mixture of God and man. But this says that the divine Son put on flesh. Notice it's not subtracting from or reducing the divine nature, but rather that Jesus Christ now has two natures within him. This is called the hypostatic union, the union of two natures in one person. The essence of the Son does not change. So this speaks of God coming down to our level so He might relate to us on our level and to provide the perfect sacrifice His own holy law demanded. Going on, verse 14, and the fourth point I want to emphasize here, the Word became flesh and He dwelt among us. So this is personal. We do not have an impersonal God but an infinitely personal and intimate God. Notice the contrast. The Greeks, impersonal force called Logos, we have the personal Logos that became flesh and He dwelt among us. This means He is close and intimate. John says here that God in human flesh lived among us. So the word dwelt here means to fix one's tabernacle or pitch a tent. I think we could go back to the Old Testament and see this picture. Remember when God commanded the people of Israel to build a tab tabernacle for the worship of God? That was a temporary tent made to fulfill a temporary purpose until the time it could build a permanent temple to worship God in. This is yet another foreshadow of a future reality and I find that it has been in a sense fulfilled here I think it could be said that the same way Jesus came to make his temporary dwelling here on earth he did not stay long and he had a specific purpose and mission so Jesus made his tent and he, among us so this is an element element of revelation of the intimately personal nature of our God he dwelt among us us humans. So we do not have a cold, impersonal deity out there somewhere who simply demands worship yet stays far away from us. No, our God came down to us. This sets Christianity apart from all other re religions out there. The God of Christianity alone has come down to meet man at his level provide a sacrifice for his sacrifice for our redemption then John goes on and says we have seen his glory glory as of the only son from the father full of grace and truth and we that is the same people as the us the same group of people have seen he had to come among us for us to see him 
Formerly he was invisible, now he is visible. God is spirit and not visible to our finite eyes. So in order for our, us finite humans to be able to see the infinite, he had to descend to our level. Now that the word became human, now John says we have seen, we have looked upon, we have looked on him. So John says, this is what we have seen, his glory. This is the first time the word glory appears in this gospel. I believe this is the purpose of John's gospel, that we might see his glory and believe in him. Here is a definition of what the glory means spoken of here. It means magnificence, excellence, preeminence, dignity, grace, majesty, a thing belonging to God, the kingly majesty which belongs to him as supreme ruler. Majesty in the sense of the absolute perfection of deity, a thing belonging to Christ. And it says the absolutely perfect inward or personal excellence of Christ. So John tells us, if we've looked on Jesus Christ, we've seen glory. We have seen magnificence, excellence, and kingly majesty and supreme ruler. And we have seen absolute perfection. So this is all a, per a personal act of incredible love by our, our triune God. John says, we, we saw him and he was glorious. And then he goes on. It says, glory as of the only Son. The radiance of the second person of the Trinity is revealed to us here. Only Son is a uniqueness claim. Jesus is God's only Son in the unique unique relationship sense. In verse 2 speaks of this too. It says, He, that is the Word, or Jesus, was in the beginning with God. So when the Bible speaks of Jesus as the Son of God, and God the Father, it refers to relationship. These are relational terms. The Bible uses these terms to explain aspects of the activity within the Godhead as it uses them, as it also uses them to distinguish between the persons. For instance, in the economy of salvation, the Father is the or originator of our redemption. He is the one from whom salvation flows. The Son voluntarily subjects Himself to the Father as the one who will go and be the perfect sacrifice for our atonement. The Holy Spirit is the one sent from both the Father and the Son to take note, to take not from Himself, but take from the Son and apply this to the elect. This doesn't make any one of the persons inferior to the other. But these are different roles they take in the work of redemption. I think the Bible paints a beautiful picture of how relationships should work. It says the Father initi initiates, the Son accomplishes, and the Spirit makes application. In all of this, the Son is perfectly obedient to the Father's will, and so is the Spirit. So all, that, so all of that to say the only Son is in reference to the relationship of Father and Son. So Jesus is the only or unique unique Son from the Father. It says He comes from the Father. From does not literally 
meaning in the liter- literal physical sense like the Mormons would have us to think. They believe Elohim or God had physical relations with one of his heavenly wives and as a result begot Jesus. They think that begotten means literally and physically. If we look back at the only son, some relation, some translations like the King James Version says, only begotten from the Father. This again refers to relationship and roles as opposed to sub- subordination or literal physical begetting. So Jesus is the only son from the Father and is entirely unique in his relationship to the Father. Then the last portion of verse 14 says, full of grace and truth. So here's a wonderful description of Jesus, the God-man. John says he was full of grace and truth. So this describes the nature of God. Look with me in John uh, 14, verse 6, if you will, if you have your Bibles. Notice verse 5 is John's, uh, Thomas's question that Jesus is answering in verse 6. So verse 6 says, Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So here Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Turn back to John 1.14 if you will. Jesus is full of grace and truth because this is who He is. He is the truth and He is the way and the life. This is later spoken of in verse 16 as well, for from His fullness, that phrase, the word fullness. So with that, let's move on to verse 15. Verse 15 says, John, that is John the Baptist, bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. So here is the witness again. Back in verse 6, we saw he is sent from God, and his name is John. Verse 7, he is described as the witness of the light, for the purpose that all might believe through his witness. And then in verse 8, he is not the light, but he, not the true light, but he comes to be a witness of the light. Now the same witness is mentioned again in verse 15 here. It says, So John, speaking of John the Baptist, is a sent one from God ahead of the Messiah to prepare the way, the one prophesied by the prophets in the Old Testament. I won't go too in-depth at this point on John here, but... Here he appears again to make some rather interesting claims about the Messiah. And it says he bore witness. The author seems quite concerned that we believe what he has to say. So he keeps bringing forward the witness as if his words need validation. We know one thing, Jesus is validated. We have the witness of John the Baptist. We have the testimony of Jesus himself. And the Father testifies of him as well. 
So in John 8, 18, if you will turn there, we see this. This is in, in the context of judging. The Jews are having another dispute with Jesus and whether he is a true witness because he bears witness about himself. But Jesus says not only is he not alone in judging, but him and the Father both judge. Notice in verse 16. And then he reminds them of their own law, which states that the testimony of two people is true. Verse 17. So Jesus then tells the Pharisees that he is also not alone in his witness, but his Father bears the same witness about him. Look at verse 18. I'll read it here. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. So the Old Testament law required more than a single witness or for something to be true. So John, like all the New Testament writers, is drenched in Old Testament law. John is not ignorant about the law and confirms his statements by another witness. He says John, that is John the Baptist, bore witness about him. That is Jesus, the Word. And it says, And he cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me. Remember, Jesus is born after John the Baptist. So John the Baptist is saying, Jesus came after me. That is, he was born after me, but he ranks before me. How can he say that? Well, John makes another one of those confessions of the higher elevation of John, of the Son of God. So John is revealing to us that although Jesus comes after John the Baptist, Jesus is superior to John. That is, he ranks higher than John. And then John gives us the reason why. And he says it's because he, that is Jesus, was before me. Hearing that phrase, I just think back of John 1.1. 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So the was here is again referring to eternity past. It speaks of a time when Jesus was, when John still was not. This is the Son The Son is eternal and John is not. So when it says, because he was before me, John is confessing that Jesus is superior to him because he long existed before himself. We see this beautiful confession in John 3 verse 30. This is John the Baptist again and he says, He that is Jesus must increase, but I must decrease. So he recognizes the nature of Jesus and likewise sees himself in a very proper way as a vapor that is here today and he's gone tomorrow. I think this is the proper way we ought to view ourselves as well. John then goes on to verse 16. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. Notice it's from His fullness, that is, from the very nature of the God-man, that which He is filled of. The word fullness, earlier we had a statement at the end of verse 14, 
said he was full of grace and truth. Now John says, from that fullness we have all received. Notice again the personal language in this passage. In verse 14 we had the incarnate word dwelling among us. And we have seen his glory. Now in verse 16 we have received. We are the ones that have, are at the receiving end once again. And God is the one from which all good things flow. So he says we have all received grace upon grace. I believe this is why we have seen him because we have received grace upon grace. First, because the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And then because we have received grace upon grace. Why would John repeat himself? Could it be because he has the Old Testament and the law in mind? We'll see in the next verse he brings John into the, into the pic, sorry, Moses into the picture. In verse 17, it says, For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. For the law was given through Moses. It says the law of God was given through Moses. Notice that the law did not come from Moses, but through Moses. The law came from God, and so did grace. I believe that is what John is bringing out here. First God gave the law through a man, and now grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So this is a direct parallel here. The law through Moses, grace and truth truth through Jesus. So what's the significance of this? What's John saying? The giving of the law was not gracious, or not at all. The giving of the law was a tremendous gift of grace on the part of God. The law reveals the prescriptive will of God. In other words, the law reveals the will of God for mankind. So the law prescribes do not kill, do not commit adultery, and honor father and mother. So this is God being gracious to mankind to command them, don't do this, but do this. And he then informs them of the suffering and pain that will cause them if they go ahead and disobey this law. So the law reveals God's holy character. The law is basically a mirror that reflects back upon God and reveals his nature. And the law is also a tutor to bring his people to himself. It works as a schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. So grace number one is the giving of the law. Grace number two, the coming of Jesus in the flesh. Grace upon grace. Let's read on in verse 18 here. It says, No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. So it says, no one has ever seen God. You might say, but earlier John said that we have seen his glory. And John also said that the word was God. So haven't we seen God then? I believe we have. We have seen God if we have looked on the sun. Jesus says in John 14.9, if you'll look there, John 
says, Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you, will do not, and you do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Now, you can, how, now how can you say, Show us the Father? When John says, No one has ever seen God, he means the Father God. We know people saw the pre-incarnate Jesus in the Old Testament. Take with me a journey in the Old Testament, starting in Genesis 32, if you will, verse 24 and onward. This is a Christophany or a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. There are many of those found in the Old Testament Scriptures. For the sake of time, we'll have to limit ourselves to one today. But Genesis 32, verse 24, And Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket. And Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, Let me go, for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, What is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, Please tell me your name. But he said, Why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of that place Penuel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. Notice a few things in this passage. Number one, as at the touch of the man, Jacob's hip, is put out of joint verse 25 this is a supernatural figure verse 28 the man says you have striven with God and men and prevailed so this man is God I believe verse 29 the man does not reveal his name to Jacob and in verse 30 so Jacob called the name of the place Penuel saying for I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. So he saw him face to face in this passage. I believe he saw the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ here. And go forward to the way to the minor, a ways to the minor prophet Hosea here. And chapter 12, verse 4. says, He strove with the angel and prevailed. He wept and sought his favor. He met God at Bethel. So Jacob strove with the angel and he met God at Bethel. It says he met God. It would be very interesting to do a more thorough study of this subject, but I found out 
many times when the Old Testament says the angel of the Lord, it is Jesus appearing to someone even face to face. Other places, the angel of the Lord accepts worship from men, which the angels do not. John falls down, as recorded in the book of Revelation, to worship an angel, but the angel says, don't do that, but worship God. In the Old Testament, in Exodus 3, 1 to 5, you don't need to turn there if you don't want to, but this is where the angel of the Lord appears to Moses in the blazing bush and then calls himself God and calls the ground where he's standing on holy ground. So we know no one has ever seen God, for if they had, they would not live. Exodus 33.20 God in John 1.18 refers to the Father. But Jesus pre-incarnate as the angel of the Lord. Angel simply means messenger. He has appeared to many in the Old Testament times. After becoming flesh in the New Testament, the angel of the Lord never appears again because he has now become incarnate. The Messiah has now come and God has spoken by him. So on in verse 18, this is now illustrated clearly in these words. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. This is the purpose of the incarnation, is to reveal the Father. Remember I mentioned before, Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? The words of Philip. That is in chapter 14. This theme is all over this gospel. And the introduction to this theme is in verse 18 at the end of this prologue. It says, The only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. The unique God, that is the Word or the Messiah, that is at the Father's side. Some translations say in the Father's bosom. This is a very unique and personal relationship term. This is what sets the Son apart from all others. The only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. This is the only one who can reveal God because He was at the Father's side and is at the Father's side. He has been in His in, in this intimate, unique, and love relationship with the Father for all eternity. So if we have seen Jesus, we have seen the Father. The Father and the Son are of the same essence. Now it said, says He has made Him known. This word is from which we get exegesis. It is to explain something. When we exegete a text, we draw a meaning or a belief or idea from the text contextually. That is the opposite of eisegesis, which is when a belief or idea is imposed into or onto a text. That is what we should not practice when interpreting the Bible. It says, So the Son has drawn from the Father and has declared Him to us. Folks, this is the heart of our faith. History revolves around this event. The Old Testament saints looked forward to the time the promised Messiah would come and believed. The New Testament saints looked backward at the promise fulfilled 
and believe also. This is the central point in history that Jesus Christ, full of glory, has come down to us, sent down by the Father to redeem us. It says, He was made flesh and dwelt among us. This is the incarnation. This is essential and foundational. Without the incarnation, we would, ha- would not have atonement and hence no forgiveness of sins and therefore no salvation. Without the incarnation, we would not see the intimate and personal nature of our God. And neither would we see the glories of God as revealed in the incarnation of Jesus Christ. So this doctrine sets Christianity apart from all other religions. God came down to us. In other religions, you got to try to work your way upward towards God. In Christianity, God did the work and came down. This is the glorious gospel of God, the good news. Let's close in prayer. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the incredible truths found deep in your eternal, ever-sufficient word. As we go from here, we ponder the depths of Scripture and especially this glorious portion that we looked at today. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear, Lord. Let us hunger and thirst for righteousness. Let us think deeply about what truly happened when Jesus became flesh. Lord, I just think of the eternal implications of this doctrine and the practical ramifications. If you had not come and we had, then we would have been eternally lost, Lord. We know that the great gulf that exists between sinful man and you, most holy and pure God, had to be bridged. Thank you for bridging that chasm by coming down and for going to the cross to making atonement for us. Lord, I just pray for anyone here that might not know you. I pray that you might draw them by your spirit and your beautiful gospel, Lord. I pray that you might convict of sin and just cause them to see your beauty and see your glory. Draw them to yourself, Lord. Thank you for your riches and wisdom and glory found in Jesus Christ. Amen.